بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان شهر رمضان كريم سلام everyone welcome to the 14 pillars podcast where we aim to deepen our relationship with the 14 infallibles of islam one hadith at a islamic regulations require that all biases are stowed prior to closing the aircraft door books of hadith may be placed in an overhead compartment but not under the seat in front of you Use caution when quoting items or removing from them, and let us know if we may assist you. Please take a moment to review the Shia and Sunni safety instructions card in your seat pocket. Passengers seated in row 14, you will also be asked to comply. If you are bestowed with knowledge, you may be required to assist the crew in explanation. If you are unable or unwilling to perform the functions described on the card, just ask to be reseated. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It is again my pleasure to welcome you aboard Flight 14 with service to Peshawar. This is your co-pilot, Ali Imad Fadallah speaking. And I want to thank you for choosing to fly with 14 pillars. We estimate to arrive at the truth at approximately 1927. Yes, we're time traveling back to that year. Some storms along the way, but mostly smooth sailing. And well worth the destination where we'll relive ten nights within the pages of what is perhaps, after Qur'an and my books of Hadith, the most important book I've ever read, Peshawar Nights. Based on your requests, we've shut off the entertaining system channels to broadcast this message, to prepare us for landing right into a debate, a dialogue that occurred in Peshawar, Pakistan, which will revert back to Peshawar and colonized India by the time we land at 1927. I'll spend this flight here sharing more context and then, upon landing, we'll join these riveting sessions that made history for Sunnis and Shias alike. This tense topic is one you might hear about at home. My parents really never discussed it, but one thing is for sure, you'll rarely hear it in public. It's taboo, a recipe for discord in an already divided Metro Detroit or Muslim Ummah at large. You may be aboard today, Shia, Sunni, or don't really care, and you may feel sick of all the politics, tired of this topic, the disagreements, the hostility, the hate. Or maybe you just hate talkative pilots. I feel you. But as a follower of the 14 pillars, I have to discuss this, and here's why. If you are here for Flight 2 to Cambridge, Massachusetts, we talked about a term that changed my life, internalized oppression. When we begin to see ourselves, usually, unconsciously, through the eyes of the oppressor, the dominant lens, the mainstream, as it pertains to any identity group we belong to. If I changed my name from Ali to El to fit in and shaved my beard out of fear of appearing Muslim, that's internalized oppression. And although this whole experience is about a debate, one thing that's not up for debate is the reality that in the Muslim Ummah, the Shias have always been, and remain today, the minority, the oppressed. In many ways, it's the opposite in, say, Iran, where Shia are majority and in power. Or it might even feel that way in Dearborn, where there's a large Shia community. But that is not a reflection of the Ummah on a national or global scale, where roughly 85% of Muslims are Sunni. So Shias, even in Dearborn, are very much impacted by the global dominance of Sunni ideology, mischaracterizations of Shia thought, 
the suppression of our history, and consequently, internalized oppression, caused by viewing ourselves through this dominant lens, a Sunni lens. What I mean is, many of you Shias aboard may feel confident about your identity, while others may feel shame, embarrassment, shyness, discomfort, even dislike or hate towards our own, perhaps guilty by association, a desire to distance ourselves from the label, out of fear of being associated with extremists or extreme practices that people attach to us. And this is why, in any area of life, with religion as no exception, the only cure to internalized oppression is education, knowledge, truth, which builds confidence, or as I once heard it put, Godfidence. Knowledge of our roots or identity make us secure, instead of insecure. And these ten nights are famous for a few reasons. First, because of Sayyid Muhammad al-Musawi al-Shirazi, Allah yirhamu, who was known by the nickname Sultan al-Wa'izn Shirazi, which means Prince of Preachers from Shiraz, for he was just 30 years old in 1927, yet already a beaming light of wisdom who was revered around the world, met with standing ovations when he traveled to give commentary on Qur'an or Hadith or Deen. But these ten nights in Peshawar were far from your average debate. For seated across Sayyid Shirazi was a team of among the most respected and well-versed leaders of the Sunni sect, who represented the vast majority of Muslims in Pakistan or India, and they agreed to debate Sunni versus Shia on one condition. This prince of preachers would have to defend Shia ideology by addressing any disagreements not through Shia books, but Sunni books and sources, and not any Sunni books, but Sunni books of Hadith from the prominent Sunni schools, the Madhab, the four highest ulama. The Sunni scholars, on the other hand, reserve the right to use their own sources. Inside the venue, they packed in 200 attendees, and thanks to 14 Pillars Airlines, will be among them today, including four reporters who recorded every word meticulously because the Muslim nation was watching and they published each day's dialogue in the newspaper the following morning so that none of it was distorted or lost, which allowed Sayyid Shirazi to compile and publish them the same year he died. And soon thereafter, they were translated to English, which is how Peshawar Nights was born. Listen to what Hamid Quinlan and Charles Ali Campbell, our translators, have to say in their preface. Recently, the non-Muslim world has forcibly learned that Islam is divided into two sects, Shia and Sunni. But there is so little material in languages other than Arabic and Persian on the Shia side of the issue that real understanding is all but impossible. The present work corrects this imbalance in a most extraordinary way. For the case of Shia Islam is argued and supported virtually entirely from Orthodox Sunni sources. In fact, it is shown here that the most authoritative source for interpreting the message of Prophet Muhammad was his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and the eleven other designated successors after him, who constituted the Imams. The translators add, Fundamental to all of these topics is the question of the authority for transmitting and interpreting Islamic law and science. This was codified by the Sunnis by four principal legalists. Their opinions contradicted each other incredibly. By contrast, 
the Shia transmission has been singular and consistent, and often quoted by Sunni authorities in the past, a fact, until now, ignored, forgotten, or suppressed. Those were our translators. What I think is most amazing for all of us aboard, other than these views at Maghrib outside our windows right now to the northeast, is the reverence, respect, admiration and trust we will hear Sayyid Shirazi gain from his debaters and audience, even after calling to question or exposing falsehood that formed their most essential beliefs, for he did so with incredible eloquence, knowledge, accuracy, respect, humility, and honor, while again pointing them to their own books, their own ulama. I've traveled to Peshawar many times before, but I remember my first time. The mere idea of a debate like this was mind-blowing to me, because this meant that Sayyid Shirazi not only knew the books of these ulama inside and out, but he also knew that even without Shia sources, he could somehow prove the mischaracterizations of our Prophet or the rightful successorship of Imam Ali or the status of our divine Imams and any other disagreement while pointing to the often unanimous records of Hadith and Sunni sources down to the exact page numbers and words. He'd constantly say things like, your own ulama have recorded these narrations in Sahih Bukhari or Sahih Muslim in so-and-so volume, page so-and-so, and he would quote, with numerous sources, never just one or two. And each day, even during the debate, they'd verify his sources to see if they were true or false or misleading. Never once did he err. Topic after topic, point after point, night after night, until they began to not only believe him, but believe in him. And all he was doing, his so-called superpower, was pointing back to the 14 infallibles, whose knowledge and wisdom was perfected by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and who, as you'll hear soon, were admired and envied by even their worst enemies. In fact, the translator shared this in the preface in reference to Sultan al-Wa'izn al-Shirazi. His success is indicated by the fact that at the end of the dialogue, one of his Sunni opponents and five other dignitaries in the audience publicly acknowledged their conversion to the Shia sect. So to me, this book offers me great hope, not for proselytizing or trying to convert anyone aboard, no. My job is simply to ensure you arrive safely at the truth, but I do love my job for the high-level view and heavenly perspective it offers. Because before I reached this heightened awareness, I used to believe that we just had completely different books and we accused one another of blasphemy. They have their Amir al-Mu'mineen, we have ours. They have their Umm al-Mu'mineen, we have ours. Can't we all just get along? But I had no idea that if we just focused on what was the same across our respected ulama, the one side of the story, it points us all back to the 14 pillars and their authentic narrations. Here I was thinking I had to wait for Imam Mehdi, may Allah hasten his reappearance, for some of these answers. Turns out it was available on Amazon, even for free on alislam.org. You know, it's insulting to call humans sheep because we're not that intellectually deficient, not literally, but metaphorically, we are shepherded or led by popular thought, deep cultural ties, family traditions, celebrities we admire, local shiukha, or the ulama our parents point us to. I was one in a flock myself until I started doing what you're doing right now, seeking knowledge. 
For if the masses of Muslims, for example, were shepherds of their own learning, we would all discover what one who was listening with an open heart might discover today, what one might have discovered in Flight 6 about Imam Ja'far as-Sadiq which is that the oral and written history fed to at least 85% of Muslims is largely false, except when they echoed the reliable narrations of the 14 infallibles. Hence, our commander of the faithful, Imam Ali said, Do not inherit your religion, learn it. And so today, let's learn from this learned man by joining those 200 attendees. We'll cover nights 1, 2, and 3 tonight, and 4 through 10 tomorrow. And although I had hundreds of topics to choose from, and will only cover one or two from each evening, I purposely chose a couple that seem, well, silly. Because if you're listening, and you're sick of the politics, the petty debates, do we pray with an urs like Shias, or not, like Sunnis? Do we hang our hands to our sides, or do we fold them over our stomachs? Do we pray our prayers separately, or do we combine some together? Is it really that big of a deal that Sunnis say radiallahu alayh after naming one of our pillars instead of saying alayhi salam? The list goes on. I've been there. It all felt so trivial, even un-Islamic. Some say these discussions, this flight here, fuels animosity. I say, it may seem that way because our engines do get hot, but you must not have ever flown a plane because we burn fuel, we don't store it. What I mean is, it's worse not to address these topics. There's a reason the Sunni debaters started this debate, asking why Shias combine prayers, for example, because many Sunnis feel offended that Shias have the audacity to combine them. And if that's because they think we've departed from the Prophet's Sunnah, don't you think we should clarify that? Or at least know why for ourselves? You've heard it before. The devil is in the details. So we must examine our books the way we examine our aircrafts before takeoff, for shaitan uses those seemingly petty things to fuel hate, so the details are important. And more importantly, they're not silly. They're the sunnah of Rasulullah and everything he modeled was of great meaning, utmost importance. We just often don't search for why. And on many topics, the search ends shortly as we are... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's your co-captain speaking. Uh, sorry, my partner went on a really long rant there. Uh, we actually been circling Peshawar for 10 minutes, waiting for him to finish. Anyway, uh, on behalf of 14 Pillars Airlines, we welcome you to Peshawar. The local time is, uh, well, time for the truth. For your safety and the safety of those around you, please remain seated with your deen upright, your wilaya fastened, and the Sarat al-Mustaqim clear until we are parked and at the gate. Night number one. Sunni scholar. Why do the Shias combine the prayers of Duhr and Asr and Maghrib and Asha? This is not in keeping with the practice of the Holy Prophet. The Sayyid. In the first place, among your own learned men, there is much difference of opinion concerning this issue. Secondly, you say we go against the practice of the Prophet. Here, you are mistaken, since the Prophet used to offer these prayers in both ways, sometimes separately, sometimes together. Sunni scholar turns to his team of learned Sunni ulama, asking if this is true, and one of his peers responds himself, 
He did combine prayers, but only when he was on a journey or when there was some other hindrance like rain. Otherwise, when he was at home, he always offered his prayers separately. The Sayyid It is recorded in your own hadith that the Prophet used to offer prayers separately as well as combined at home and without any obstruction. Many of your hadith confirm this fact. In Sahih al-Muslim, Muslim bin Hajjaj records that Ibn Abbas said, The Prophet used to say Duhr and Asr, as well as Maghrib and Asha prayers jointly, without being constrained to do so, and when he was at home. Again, Ibn Abbas narrated, We said eight rak'ats of Duhr and Asr, and later seven rak'ats of Maghrib and Asha prayers jointly with the Holy Prophet. The Sayyid then cites at least three more examples, while pointing to many more. Sunni scholar. Well, there is no such quotation of hadith in Sahih Bukhari. Side note, Al-Bukhari, if you don't know, is the most famous and important scholar in the history of the Sunni sect, and Al-Muslim is right near him. The Sayyid. Since all the authors I named and other great Sunni scholars have quoted these things, this is sufficient for us to win our point. But, in fact, Bukhari, too, has recorded these hadith in his Sahih, but he has deceitfully put them away from their proper place, the section concerning the combination of two prayers. If you go to so-and-so chapters, the Sayyid named them, I'm just sparing you the long Arabic names, you will find these hadith there. They are under the heading, quote, permission and authorization to combine two prayers, end quote, which proves that this is the common belief of learned men of the two sects. Sunni scholar, well, how is it possible that these hadith have been put into practice since the time of the Holy Prophet, but learned men have adopted a different path? In other words, he's telling the Sayyid, Does it seem reasonable to you, Sayyid, that the Prophet used to combine his prayers, but none of these learned men got the memo? The Sayyid wisely responds, This situation is not confined to this topic alone. You will see many such examples later. So the Sayyid is basically saying, That's a good question, my friend. Perhaps you should ask yourself. Before night number two, let's pause for a second because I'll be honest, I admire how Sunnis, and some Shia too, separate their salahs. It's a beautiful sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu And you might feel like, I mean, yeah, why would the Prophet, in his perfection, his perfect piety, combine prayers when separating them is harder? First, separating them is maybe harder for you and me but not for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. For him, it was all the same. He was in constant communion with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether he was praying, working, traveling, sitting, perfect devotion was his life, his whole being. So he didn't seek or feel the convenience you and I might from combining prayers. Second, as Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi said, he was set to perfect righteous character. And he modeled that for us, right? His job was to teach us required versus haram, encouraged versus discouraged, and neutral. Of course, he would never model haram or discouraged acts, makru acts, but he would model variations of good. He was showing us, this way is okay, that way is okay. It reminds me of a hadith where they say, the Prophet ﷺ would fast for so long, for months on end, until the people would say, all this man does is fast. Does he ever not fast? And then he wouldn't fast for months on end, till people would say, does he ever fast outside Shahar Ramadan? So how do we explain this? Sometimes he didn't feel like it? God forbid. Of course not. He was showing us, outside Shahar Ramadan, where it's required, fasting is encouraged, but this way of fasting constantly is okay?
and this way of not fasting constantly is also okay. In the time leading up to the end of his life, it's narrated that he was fasting twice per week, so he modeled several styles, all okay, perhaps some preferred. But the point is, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preferred for him to fast always or pray separately, instead of modeling options for us, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi would have done both every day. Night number two. During night number one, the Sunnah scholar asked the Sayyid to prove his genealogy to the Prophet. Since he is called Sayyid, which means direct lineage to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, the Sunnah scholar wanted proof. The Sayyid provided it. So night two began with this. Sunnah scholar, I was greatly impressed by your instructive conversation concerning your ancestral lineage. I admit that you are a descendant of the Holy Prophet, but I wonder how a man of your learning could be under the degrading influence of the enemies. Having left the ways of your illustrious ancestors, you have now adopted the ways of the unbelievers of Iran. What I mean by the foolish ways of the enemies are those innovations which have entered Islam through the Israelites. The Sayyid Kindly explain what you mean. Sunni scholar The Israelites' whole history is stained with deceit. Some few men professed Islam and pretended to accept the hadith of the Holy Prophet and thus created confusion among the Muslims. The third caliph, Uthman bin Affan, pursued them and they fled to Egypt where they established a sect known as the Shia. They spread false reports about Caliph Uthman and fabricated hadith to the effect that the Holy Prophet appointed Ali as Caliph and Imam. With the formation of this sect, there was widespread violence which led to the murder of Caliph Uthman and the assumption of the Caliphate of Ali. Later, the Shia became powerful during the period of the Dalamites and the Safavid kings and were finally recognized. They were then formally known as the Shia sect. In short, the Shia sect was founded by a Jew, Abdullah bin Sabah. Otherwise, there would have been no such word as Shia in Islam. Your grandfather, the Holy Prophet, hated the word, in fact, the Shia sect is part of the Jewish faith. I wonder why you left the just ways of your ancestors and followed the path of your predecessors who adopted Jewish ways. You should have followed the Holy Quran and the example of your grandfather, the Prophet. The Sayyid It is unusual for a learned man like you to base his arguments on utterly false grounds. Abdullah bin Sabah was a Jew, and according to the Shia sources, a hypocrite, and is harshly condemned. If for some time he appeared to be a friend of Ali, what connection did he have with the Shias? If a thief puts on the attire of a learned man, mounts the pulpit, and injures the cause of Islam, should you be against learning and call learned men thieves? While you argue on the basis of the concocted evidence of the enemies, I will cite for you verses from the Holy Quran and records of your own authors to establish the true position. The Sayyid continues, Shia, as you know, literally means follower. One of your greatest ulama, Firuz Abadi, in so-and-so book says, the name Shia commonly means every person who was a friend of Ali and his Ahl al-Bayt. This name is peculiar to them. Exactly the same meaning is given by Ibn Athir. According to your own commentaries, the word Shia means follower of Ali bin Abu Talib and was used in this way during the time of the Prophet. In fact, it was the Prophet himself who introduced the word Shia as meaning, quote, 
follower of Ali bin Abu Talib. And this word was used by the Holy Prophet about whom Allah says, nor does he speak out of desire. It is not but revelation that is revealed. Quran chapter 53 verses 3 and 4. The Prophet called the followers of Ali, quote, the Shia, quote, the delivered, and quote, the rescued. Sunni scholar, where is such a thing? We have never seen it. The Sayyid, we have seen it, and we do not think it is proper to conceal facts. Allah condemned concealers and called them companions of hell. Before pointing to the evidence, the Sayyid quotes two passages from the Quran, including chapter 2, verse 159. Allah says, Surely those who conceal the clear proofs and the guidance that we revealed after we made it clear in the book for men, those it is whom Allah shall curse. Sunnah scholar, if we know the truth and conceal it, I agree, we deserve condemnation as revealed in these holy verses. The Sayyid, I hope you keep that in mind so that the habit of intolerance does not overpower you. Hafiz Ispahani is one of the most distinguished of your narrators. This respected scholar and traditionist, the pride of your ulama, relates from Abdullah bin Abbas through his own chain of narrators. Quote, when the following verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 98, verse 8, was revealed, which says, For those who believe and do good, surely they are the best of men. Their reward with their Lord is gardens of perpetuity, beneath which rivers flow, abiding therein forever. Allah is well pleased with them, and they are well pleased with Him. That is for him who fears his Lord. Rasulullah said, O Ali, the best of creatures in this holy verse refers to you and your Shia. On the day of resurrection, you and your followers shall attain such a position that Allah will be pleased with you and you will be pleased with him. The Sayyid then cites numerous more of the same hadith from different Sunni chains of narrations and prominent Sunni books of hadith. He then mentions another seminal Sunni work, the Sayyid. It was related from Jabir bin Abdullah Ansari. I was in the presence of the Holy Prophet when Ali joined us, and thereupon the Holy Prophet said, It is my brother that has come to you. Then, facing towards the Kaaba, the Prophet took hold of Ali's hand and said, By him who controls my life, this Ali and his Shia will be delivered on the Day of Judgment. Then he said, Ali is the foremost of you all in belief the most regardful about Allah's pledges, the most just of you all in deciding matters of the people, the most equitable of you in distribution of allowances among the people, and the highest of you all in rank before Allah. On that occasion, the verse cited about, chapter 98, verse 8, of the Qur'an was revealed. End quote. The Sayyid then cites another major Sunni scholar, bin Hajjar, who records a hadith from Madani, another great Sunni scholar, who says that when Quran chapter 98 verse 8 was revealed, quote, The Holy Prophet said, O Ali, you and your Shia are the best of created beings. You and your Shias will come on the day of judgment in such a condition that all of you will be pleased with Allah and Allah will be pleased with you. The Sayyid continues, Ibn Sabbah, who is regarded as one of your distinguished scholars and eminent theologians in his so-and-so book, relates that when the verse under discussion was revealed, the Prophet said to Ali, It is you and your Shias. You and they will come on the day of judgment fully pleased and satisfied, while your enemies will come in grief with bound hands. Shafai, one of your eminent scholars, 
and the well-known anti-Shia scholar Ibn Hajjar narrate from Umm Salma, the wife of the Prophet, that the Holy Prophet said, O Ali, you and your Shias will abide in paradise. You and your Shias will abide in paradise. The Sayyid continues, Further, known scholar Muwafiq bin Ahmad in his Manaqib chapter 19 relates on reliable authority that the Prophet said to Ali, In my community, you are like the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. This statement implies that just as the followers of the Prophet Jesus were divided into three groups, the true believers, known as Hawara'in, the Jews, and the exaggerators who associated him with Allah. In the same way, Muslims would become divided into three. One of them would be the Shias, the true believers. The other group would be Ali's enemies. The third group would be the exaggerators of his position. As soon as the Sayyid finished, the call for Aisha prayer sounded, and people dispersed. When they returned, a man read from the various hadith that the Sayyid was quoting from for verification purposes. Since they were accurate, the Sayyid noted that the expressions of those who were upset with him in the room changed. While searching their books, they even stumbled upon another hadith themselves, further confirming his words, and with good integrity, they read it aloud, leaving the audience in wonder. Later, they would discuss other extremist groups, the Ghulat, who call themselves Shia, and the Sayyid would establish clear proofs of how Ahl al-Bayt condemned these Ghulat and how Amir al-Mu'mineen even imprisoned their leader and ordered him to repent for his wickedness. Night 2 reminds me of a simple yet profound hadith by Imam Ali salam. The extremists are non-believers. Night number 3. Skipping ahead in this night. The Sayyid. The Prophet said in a hadith acknowledged by both sects, O oh, my people, I leave behind me, for you, two great objects of authority, the Book of Allah and my Ahl al-Bayt. Should you remain attached to these two, never, never shall you be misled after me. Sunni scholar, we do not rely on this tradition which you try to revise. There are many innovations in your books and examples of polytheism, like seeking fulfillment of our desires from the imams rather than from Allah. What is polytheism? Polytheism means to turn to any person or thing rather than to Allah for the satisfaction of our needs. It has been observed that Shias never invoke Allah. They invoke the Imams. It is nothing but polytheism. The Sayyid, I am afraid you distort facts. Polytheism in prayer means turning one's attention during prayers towards a created being rather than towards Allah. If we wish to determine the faith of a community, we should not rely on the uninformed people of that community. We should study their reliable books. If you wish to study Shiaism, don't start with Shia beggars on the roads crying, O Ali, O Imam Ridha, and on that ground declare that Shias are polytheists. Similarly, if ignorant people make pledges or offerings in the name of the Imams or their sons, you should not slander all of Shiaism. If you study Shia books of jurisprudence, you will find that there is not a single trace of polytheism or absurdity. The insistence on the oneness of Allah is manifest everywhere. The Sayyid continues to explain the difference between open polytheism and hidden polytheism in great detail. Sunni scholar, I admit that all you have said is correct, but if you would just take the trouble to think for a moment, you will agree that to rely on the imams is polytheism, since we should not seek any human means of approach to Allah. 
we should invoke Allah directly for help. The Sayyid, It is strange that you ignore what I have been saying here all along. Is it polytheism to make requests of other people for the fulfillment of our desires? If this were true, the whole of humanity is polytheistic. If to seek help from others is polytheism, why did the Prophet seek help from people? If I go to a physician and ask him to cure me, am I a polytheist? Again, if a man is drowning and he cries for help, is he a polytheist? So please be fair and do not misconstrue facts. The whole Shia community believes that if anyone considers the descendants of the Prophet as being Allah or partners in himself, he is surely a polytheist. But the fact is that since the world is a house of secondary causes, we consider them the means of deliverance from troubles. We seek the help of Allah through them. Sunni scholar, instead of invoking Allah directly, why do you invoke the means? The Sayyid, our permanent attention regarding our desires, distresses, and anguish is fixed upon Allah, the Absolute. But the Holy Quran says that we should reach Almighty Allah through some means of approach when He says in chapter 5 verse 38, O you who believe, do your duty to Allah and seek the means of approach to Him. Sunnah scholar, but why do you say that the words means of approach in the above verse refer to the descendants of the Holy Prophet? The Sayyid, in many hadith, the Prophet recommended to us that in our troubles we invoke his descendants as a means of approach to Allah. Many of your ulama, like, and the Sayyid lists many major ulama here, say that wasilat or means of approach in the mentioned verse means the descendants of the Prophet. One of your respected ulama says that Fatima Zahra salam referred to the meaning of this verse in these words, quote, I praise Allah for the dignity and light that allows the residents of the skies and the earth to seek the means of approach towards Him, and among His creation, we are the means of approach. The Sayyid continues by reintroducing a previous hadith. Among the many accepted arguments about the lawfulness of our following the descendants of the Prophet is a hadith accepted across the sects. The Prophet said, O people, I leave behind me for you two great objects of authority, the Book of Allah and my Ahlul Bayt. Should you keep yourselves attached to these two, never, never will you go astray. Sunni scholar, I think you are mistaken when you say this hadith is authentic and that it has been accepted by all since it is unknown by our great ulama. The Sayyid, I am not mistaken about it. The authenticity of this holy hadith has been acknowledged by your own ulama. Even Ibn Hajjar Makki, for all his intolerance and prejudice, accepts it as true. The Sayyid provides ample evidence before moving on. Skipping ahead. The Sayyid. Another reason we seek attachment to the descendants of the Prophet is the authentic Hadith as safina which has been narrated by all of your great ulama, almost without exception, and with unbroken continuity. More than a hundred of your own scholars have related this Hadith. The Sayyid then names a long list of them, before saying, And many other great scholars of your sect have related that the Holy Prophet ﷺ said, The likeness of my Ahlul Bayt is that of the Ark of Nuh. He who gets into it is saved, while he who turns away from it will be drowned and lost. The Sayyid continues, Imam Shafi'i, who is recognized as one of the distinguished religious scholars of the Sunni sect, 
admits that our attachment to the purified family of the Prophet is the means of our deliverance because, of the seventy sects of Islam, the sect which follows the descendants of the Prophet is the only one to secure deliverance. Alright, let's all gather here in the corridor. I hope you enjoyed being one of the 200 few to be allowed in this room. 14 Pillars is putting you all up in luxury tents tonight to reflect on what we've learned. But first, a few notes to assist you with that reflection. The hadith mentioned above, with over 100 narrations in Sunni books about the Ahl al-Bayt being the Ark of Nabi Nuh salam, references a story we find in the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals to Nabi Nuh salam that other than his current Shia or followers, no one else would believe or stop worshipping idols despite him preaching to them for hundreds of years. So Prophet Nuh pleaded to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who then instructed Nabi Nuh to build an ark. After decades of building it, he and his true Shia departed on this ark while the rest behind suffered in the great flood that wiped out the hypocrites. Quran chapter 71 verse 25 says, Because of their wrongs they were drowned, then made to enter fire, so they did not find any helpers besides Allah. The story is told throughout the Quran, but chapter 71, Surah Nuh, is dedicated to Nabi Nuh and the story. So go read it under the Peshawar stars. It's beautiful. And tomorrow is a Allah Rad. We'll meet right back here in this corridor to be live again in Peshawar, where we will continue to explore, beginning with night four, some of the most polarizing, controversial, and illuminating topics that have divided the Muslim Ummah into sects, despite the fact that these sects carry abundant evidence in their own books, as you now well know, that the true Shia of the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu are embodied by his holy progeny. May Allah, the most praiseworthy, send our peace and prayers to them. And, indeed, I ask for their intercession as we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to aid us in our belief and bring us all back here safely. I'll see you then, inshallah, and assalamu alaikum.